Good morning, everybody. Welcome to 2018. I can finally say that. It's also uh, Epiphany Sunday, so uh, traditionally this is when you can take your Christmas decorations down. That's, that's the tradition, which I will, I'm informed I'll be doing this afternoon. So, <laughs> want to invite our uh, children to uh, Children's Church. If you want to go out back, meet teacher will meet you. Just a place for the kids to learn in a more age-appropriate setting. And while they go, let me open us in a word of prayer. Lord, you are truly our great reward. And uh, that's something that uh, is subtle and easy to miss, is that the goal of salvation, the goal of your winning us to yourself, is that we might know you more, that we may gain more of you. And all the other things that are added to that are extras, but Lord, the, the great thing is that we are in your presence for eternity. So we pray that that would be our treasure. And Lord, I pray for, um, for other churches in the Antelope Valley this morning. I pray for Revive AV and for Pastor Jeff as he's preaching and, and as they're gathered to worship. Lord, I pray that you would be with them in spirit and in truth. Lord, that the word would be ministered powerfully to them and that they would um, together seek to follow you more faithfully. Um, Lord, would you bless them as they uh, continue to work on merging the two churches, even though officially it's done. I'm sure there's numerous little details that have to go on. And uh, I thank you that you have sent them a, a good and faithful shepherd and Pastor Jeff. Uh, we pray your blessing on that congregation and for the success in their ministry of the gospel. And Lord, we ask that you'd be with us now as we look at Joseph's story. Um, Lord, would you uh, show us what it is that we are to gain from this, how we're to understand uh, what it is that you're telling us this morning, and that's through the power of the Spirit working in our hearts and our minds. We pray in Christ's name for this. Amen. So, um, finishing chapter 38 this morning. You remember last week, Joseph had a couple of dreams. And what I said last week was these dreams were prophetic. This was, these weren't just like, oh, I had a dream and some zombies were chasing me. This was something that God was communicating to, uh, to Joseph, some prophecy of the future. And you could tell you didn't need an interpreter for this because of the reaction. Uh, the first dream was the harvest. They're, they're bringing in the harvest and all the sheaves bow down to Joseph's sheave. And the brothers hated that. They, they found that really offensive. But the second one was even worse. The stars and the sun and the moon bowed out Joseph himself. And in that one, his dad gets mad at him. But that, that section ended and it said, but his father kept the saying in mind. So Jacob hung on to that, that dream. Even though he found it offensive that I'm going to bow down to my son, he still hung on to it and, and he held to it. So this week, as we finish out chapter 37, what we're going to see is the brother's reaction to this dream. Uh, how do the brothers respond? And in the end, we'll look at what does this have to do with us? That's, that's a, a good Bible study method is you read the section, you understand it, make sure you get all the nuance of it, and then say, so what? Um, is this just an interesting bit of history? So this morning, we'll hopefully go and be able to unpack this section as well and understand what it has to do with us. So let's take a look. Um, his brothers, Joseph's brothers, take off and they're pastoring the flock near Shechem. Um, Remember how Jacob's story ended. He had done so well with his cousin Laban that he left with a huge flock of sheep. And when he came to the promised land, when he returned to Canaan, Esau met him and he sent a gift ahead. And Esau was like, no, man, I don't need it. Keep it all. 
So when you hear him talking about his flock, think about this. There's 10 brothers. Joseph and Benjamin are still at home. There are 10 grown men because this flock is so big. It's a gigantic flock of sheep that had to be taken away to be uh, pastured. So it's not just like you know, this little group and some, some uh, shepherds with crooks uh, sitting under the stars. This is a, a massive enterprise. And so they're gone, and they were probably gone for a while because they'd have to really roam to let these sheep feed across that area. And so Israel, that's Jacob, sends Joseph to find the brothers and say, hey, they're pastoring at Shechem. Go see how everything's going. Now, does that remind you of anything? What happened last week was Joseph brought an evil report about his brothers. He went out when they were pastoring the flock, and he, he brought a, an evil report, a bad report about them. And so the idea here is Jacob trusts him. He knows he's not going to sugarcoat it. So go out and find out what they're up to. They're probably up to no good. And so he sends him to look for him. So he goes off, and he gets to Shechem, and he's wandering around the fields. Nobody's there. It's empty. And he runs into a man and says, hey, I'm looking for my brothers. The man asks him, what are you seeking? He says, I am seeking my brothers. And tell me where they are. And so he says, yeah, they went a little bit further on. They're in Dothan. And so Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. So here's this, this introduction kind of sets the thing up. What you see and what we're going to see in this whole section is Joseph is continually moving further and further away from his father. His father sends him to Shechem. That's not too far. The, sheep's not, the sheep are not there. And so now he travels another 12 miles, another step away from his, his father. So his father sends him, then a stranger sends him, then he gets to his brothers, and his brothers send him. And so he's continually moving away from this. So it sounds like the dream, the promise, is, might be threatened. How is he going to rule over them if he keeps moving farther away from them? Um, but the one sentence in there that Joseph says, I think is kind of, I think it's going to continue to ring through Joseph's story. I am seeking my brothers. And I think that's what his, his, the rest of his life is going to be, is he is seeking his brothers. His brothers hate his guts, and he's continuing to seek them. Even when he's in exile, even when he's in Egypt, when they show up, he doesn't destroy them. He doesn't reveal himself right away. He's continuing to seek him. He's continuing to draw them in. So I think that little phrase is, is really the, the banner that goes over the rest of Je uh, Joseph's life as, he, as he's going. So he goes after his brothers. And so they, they saw him from afar. And before he came near, they conspired to kill him. Remember last week, they hated him said three times that they hated him and they were jealous of him. So this is now the result of that. that this is what, what that kind of resentment fosters, is they're going to kill him. And so they're, they say, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into the pit. Then we'll see, uh, say a fierce animal has devoured him, and we'll see what will become of his dreams. What are they, what are they really opposing here? Who are they really against at this point? Who gave Joseph the dreams? It wasn't Joseph who made this stuff up. These were dreams from, from God. So God has promised them, Joseph is going to rule over you. And their response is, oh, here comes that dreamer. Let's see what happens. We're going to kill him and see what happens with his dreams. Let's see how this goes. They're not rejecting so much Joseph as they are God's prophecy, God's announcement to them of what he's going to do for them. And... We'll get to it, but there's a reason that Joseph is going to rule over them. 
There's a reason that that's important. And so we'll get there. What's interesting, he says, they will, then we'll say a fierce animal has devoured him. In, in the literal Hebrew, it says a, a, an evil beast would be another way to translate it. So we're going to say a, an evil beast has devoured him. And then we'll see what becomes of his dreams. When Ro Reuben hears this, Reuben interjects. He, 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 he says, wait a minute, you guys, let's not do that. He rescues him out of, their hand, out of his hands. And he says, let's not take his life. So don't shed blood, but throw him into a pit. So this is the, the first response of the brothers, the nine brothers is, we're just going to kill him. Reuben comes along and says, don't get blood on your hands. Um, just pitch him in a pit. Now, this isn't like you know, a pit where he's standing on the edge looking out. This is a cistern. That's why it mentions there's no water in it. This is a deep hole in the ground. So the idea that Reuben has is, we'll pitch him into a, a hole, and then I'll sneak when my brothers aren't paying attention. I'll rescue him. I'll get him out. So don't kill him, but throw him in a hole. So the brothers go from, I'm going to plunge a knife into his heart, to we'll just pitch him in a hole and let him rot in there. Can you imagine what it would be like to be thrown in a cistern, a hole out in the desert, and to not get any food or water or anything? It would be a week before this man died. It would be much more humane if they were to just plunge a knife into his heart. But now they, they like the idea better. Hey, instead, let's let the little brat starve to death. This is going to be great. It, it just gets worse. It gets more cruel. And so they, they throw him in the pit, and his brothers take his robe, that, that beautiful robe. Remember last week I said it might be a multicolored robe or it might be a, a long robe with sleeves. Whatever it was, whatever it looked like, it was an emblem of Jacob's love for his son. It was this banner that he put on his son, this, this marker that said, I love this boy. This is my favorite. This is the son in whom I delight. And it sounds kind of, you know, like bad parenting 101. But the point was, Jacob loved Rebekah. He, she was the one he wanted. He got tricked into marrying Leah and then wind up having kids with concubines. But he loved Rebekah. And Joseph was Rebekah's firstborn after she had been barren for a very long time. So there's a reason that he was inclined towards Joseph. Parenting tip 102, don't ever tell your children, this one's my favorite. That's a bad move. And, and it's going to breed the kind of distrust that, that comes here. And that's a bad family dynamic to have. And don't give them a t-shirt that says Papa's favorite, which is essentially what this, this jacket is, is this is daddy's favorite. And, and it incenses them so much that their goal, they're going to take it off him. They're going to tear it up. They're going to soak it in blood. And they're going to send it to dad. We're going to take the emblem of our father's love and rub it in his face. That, that's the goal here, is, is they're, going to, they're going to disfigure it and send it back to prove, oh, your, your favorite son got eaten by an animal. So they pitch him into the hole, and then they sit down to eat. The wild beast, the evil beast, has indeed devoured him. They're sitting down to eat. The contrast between those is just outrageous. You can hear Joseph screaming from the pit, come on, you guys, it's not funny anymore. And they're just, you know, big deal. They're chowing down. It's just a cold, callous, heartless response to this poor boy. He's, and he's, he's referred to as a young boy. He's only 17. He's just a little kid, and they're, and they're doing this to him. So they sit down to eat, and looking, they see a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with the camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to Egypt. And Judah comes up with a better idea. 
says, okay, so idea one was we'll just kill him, but we decided we don't want blood on our hands, so we pitched him in a hole. There's no benefit in that. We don't make anything off of this deal. So Judah says, here's a better idea. Let's sell him, because then at least we'll get some cash for the kid. So we get rid of him, and we get the cash. Isn't that great? So when they see these Ishmaelites coming, Ishmaelites were traveling nomads. They, they traveled in, in packs. They, they had camels. They sold wares back and forth. So they're heading towards Egypt, and, they, and Judah's like, well, we can make money off them guys. We'll just sell them and, and be done with it. So it says then, um, his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. So one of the questions is, who took Joseph to Egypt? Was it Ishmaelites or was it Midianites? Um, the words seem to be used interchangeably. Uh, chapter 36 is a genealogy, and it says that, that Midian was a child of Abraham through his second wife, uh, Keturah, not through Sarah. So he's one that's outside the covenant family, but he's still one of Abraham's children. And Ishmaelites, who's Ishmael? Ishmael is Abraham's son through Hagar. So Ishmaelites can't be Midianites, and Midianites can't be Ishmaelites. Um, but like I said, the, the section seems to use the terms interchangeably. So what's going on there? Um, some of the commentators said, well, what happened was they saw Ishmaelites coming, Midianites showed up in the camp and pulled him out of the hole, and the Midianites took him and sold him to the Ishmaelites. And then it gets confusing because it says at one point Ishmaelites sold him to Potiphar, and in another place it says that Midianites sold him. So we really don't get out of it this way. Um, this is a minor point, but I just I need to clear it up real quick. So here's what's going on. The second half of Genesis 25 lists Ishmael's offspring. And the way it talks about Ishmael's offspring is it talks about tribes and clans. So it may be that at this point in redemptive history, when they say Ishmaelites, they don't mean physical descendants from Ishmael, but these groups of clans. And it might be that the Midianites, the children of Midian, have joined in with them. And, and I'm not just speculating on this and making it up. There's actual reasons for it. Because Judges chapter 8 is the story of Gideon. Gideon goes out against the Midianites, and he defeats them. And when he defeats them, they take the, the uh, loot from the kings, and Gideon says, hey, here's, what, here's all I want. Just give me the gold from their earrings, and I'll take it. And then just almost parenthetically in verse 24, it says, for they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. So it's not just like a mistake here. It is a biblical theme that Midianites are Ishmaelites. So it seems like that tribe joined in with them, and they were merchants as well. Um, it would make sense because there's a relationship there. They share Abraham as a father, but they're excluded from the covenant family that went through Isaac and Jacob. So it kind of makes sense that they may associate with each other. So all that detail just to clear up that one thing because commentators spill a lot of ink on that, trying to figure out how to make that thing work. So they sell him. Now, Reuben has apparently snuck off. He, 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 maybe he went out to say, I'm going to check on the herds or you know, check the flocks or something. So he misses this entire exchange. And what he's planning on doing is while they're busy doing something else, he's going to loop around and he's going to get Joseph out of the pit and return him to his father. So Reuben is another complicating question in this. What is Reuben doing this for? 
there's, there's two different ways to read it. Reuben just is being the good guy. He's being upright. I'm going to take care of my little bro. I'm, I'm going to send him back to dad. We're going to make everything right. And so Reuben is just trying to be a good guy. That's one particular way to read it. The way I read it is he's no better than his brothers. Now, remember in the beginning of chapter 37, it says three times his brothers hated him. Reuben is one of his brothers. So then what's Reuben's goal here? What's going on with Reuben trying to get Joseph, Joseph out of the hole and back to his dad? I think it's a little bit complicated, but in chapter 35, there's almost a throwaway line, just kind of a, a parenthetical statement, doesn't get really developed. This is where it comes to bear. It says, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. So Reuben was the firstborn. He was the one who should inherit the blessing. He should get all of the stuff that God had promised to Abraham. But he did, another way that it says it kind of old English way is he defiled his father's couch. He went into one of his father's concubines. And so this disqualifies him from being the firstborn. Israel heard about it. Israel remembered it. Israel didn't let it go. So what Reuben's deal is, is Reuben is entitled to the firstborn, but has lost it. And then in 1, Corinthians chapter, or 1 Chronicles chapter 5, um, it's beginning to list the sons of Reuben, and it tells this little story. It says, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, parentheses, we've got to explain this now, for he was the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's couch, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, so that he could not be enrolled as the oldest son. Though Judah became strong among his brothers and a chief came from him, yet the birthright belonged to Joseph. So the, the biblical interpretation is this is Reuben. Reuben is no better than his brothers. He slept with his father's concubine. He lost his birthright. The beginning of the chapter says he hated his brother. He was jealous of his brother. So why on earth would he rescue Joseph at this point? I think what he's doing is he recognizes Joseph's daddy's favorite. If I restore Joseph to daddy, daddy may restore firstborn status to me. I think he's doing it for a selfish reason. He wants his birthright back. And so that's the only reason that he would go and help somebody who he hated, someone who he's jealous of. So it's hard to discern Reuben's motives, and, and I'm reading into it because it really doesn't explain it well, but just given the guy's background, it doesn't look good. So here's what happens. He comes back, and he looks in the hole, and he goes, the boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? And that's just a way that a, a phrase, he's not asking, where do I go now, like I can't go home. It, it's like saying, now what do I do? He's not expecting an answer. It's just this expression of, oh my gosh, my whole plan is ruined. Um, now what do I do? I, I, can't, I can't win daddy's favor back because now his best is gone. And so Reuben is really upset about this. It says the boy is gone. They took Joseph's robe. They slaughtered a goat, dipped the, blood in it, or dipped the robe in the blood, and they sent the robe of many colors. They sent it. They didn't bring it. They sent it. So they probably grabbed one of their servants and said, here, take this back to Jacob. And so the robe shows up in the camp, and, and Jacob is like, what is going on? And then the brothers come up. And this is what sin is like, right? They, they've done a horrible thing, and now they're going to get really slick about it. it they, they bring it to him, and they say, um, 
this we've found. Please identify whether this is your son's robe or not, because like we don't know. You know. Oh, surprise! We didn't know that was his. They're trying to they're trying to cover their sin by telling a lie, by asking these questions and, and feigning innocence. They know exactly what happened. They know exactly what's going on. And the most terrible thing about this is they sent this badge of their father's love, torn up, dipped in blood to their father. They disfigured the emblem of his love, and they don't give a rip about Jacob. They don't care about him at all. This is going to break our father's heart. That's all right, as long as we get a good deal out of it. Hey, we made some silver. It's good. So this is their their callousness. This is what the brothers are like. They were going to kill him, and then they decided to profit off of it. And now, to complete the act, They dump on their father in such a way that it breaks his heart. Listen to how Jacob responds to this. He says, yeah, that's his coat. And when all his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, no, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Sheol is just where dead people are. He's he's saying, I'm going to go to my grave in sorrow because of this. This is what his sons have done to him because they wanted something. They didn't, it didn't matter to them that they broke their father's heart. It, it wasn't important. And Jacob's, Jacob's heart is so broken, he claims that he's going to die because of this. So consider for a minute what, this, what the sin looks like in this. You've got basically three people sinning in this. You've got the brothers, Judah, and Reuben. So the brothers... Their sin is overt. We're just going to kill him. That's just overt hatred. That's what happens when hatred festers long enough as it turns into murder. Judah is with him at that point, but he says, no, we got to get something out of this. So now not only is he hating his brother, he plans to make a profit off of this. Surely we can sell him and get some cash off this deal. So they're selfish. Reuben, meanwhile, he, his sin is a sin of obedience. He wants to restore Joseph to Jacob. But if I'm reading him right, it's a sin of obeying. It's a sin of keeping what he should be doing because what he's hoping to get out of it is not his father saying, oh, good, my son's home. What he's hoping to hear is, oh, good, my son's home. Oh, and you get your firstborn status back. So he obeys, but he obeys from a, a, a wicked position. He's looking for the wrong things. And so... The, what, what we can get out of this for us is you look at this and you say, this is what sin can be like. Sin can be overt, sin can be selfish, and sin can be a sin of obedience, doing the right thing for wrong reasons. It, it's kind of a chilling story when you think about it, is, is this is what sin does in your heart. So as they sit on their hatred and their jealousy, as they refuse to deal with it, as they just keep harboring it, it begins to fester and grow. And so when the opportunity presents itself, sin comes into full bloom and they're going to kill their brother. That's that's where it goes. This is how James describes it. James chapter 3, he said, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly unspiritual, demonic. 
That's what that kind of wisdom is. Once you've harbored that selfishness and that pride and that jealousy in your heart, the results are what he says are unspiritual, earthly, and demonic. That's pretty chilling. He says, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. That's the fruit of harboring that hatred and that jealousy, of sitting on it, of never addressing it, is it turns into this bitter, ugly, demonic fruit in your life. And then James goes on and he contrasts. He says, but wisdom that's from above is pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So the brothers have harbored this hatred and sat on it for too long. And it's festered and it's turned into this. And so what they're saying is they all three brothers want the exact same thing. Remember how, what they said when, when Joseph came? Look at this dreamer. Let's kill him and see what happens to his dream. What they're all three saying is we don't want Joseph to rule over us. We are rejecting God's ruler for this family. We're saying we don't want him. The brothers say, we'll just kill him, and then we don't have to deal with it. Judah says, well, we don't, I don't want him either, but let's make a profit off this at least. And Reuben says, well, I don't want him either, but I think I'd be a better ruler. So I'll just bring him home so that I can take his place. They, they all three want that. They're all looking for that same thing as I want to be in charge. Or at least I don't want God's man in charge. That would be, that would be outrageous. And that, for me, it sounds like what happened to Jesus. Because Jesus came to his own, and his own did not receive him. He came as the one who would be the, the son of David, the promised Messiah, the king of Israel. And they hated him, and they threw him off. At John 19, when Jesus is, is being presented, it says, They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. We don't want the Messiah. We want somebody else to rule over us. That's what they were looking for. That was what their purpose was in this, was they were looking for their own ruler to be put in charge. So let's bring this back to us. Let's, how does this apply to us? This is the so what portion of the, of the sermon. What do we learn from this? Well, we saw that sin can be overt. It can be selfish, but it can also be extraordinarily deceitful and masquerade itself as obedience. So what am I supposed to do about it then? I can't even trust myself in this. When I'm doing the right thing, I might be doing it for wrong reasons. What, where do I go? We kind of agree with Reuben at this point. Now where do I go? What do I do? Well, if sin is that deceitful and it's that difficult and it's that hard to get away from, what we need is we need somebody to rule over us. We need God's man to rule over us. And when it comes to Christ ruling over us, he does that in his church right now. There's a day coming when he'll rule over the world, but right now he's ruling over his people in his church. And, and that's important because, especially in our culture, which is drawn to celebrity, there are celebrity pastors. They write books, they have radio programs, they, they do all of these things, and we're drawn not so much to the message, but to the person sometimes. So that's that deceitful part where it's obedience, but it's obedience for selfish reasons. 
So I think it would be helpful for us to say, how is it that Christ rules over us and what does it look like in a proper setting when Christ is ruling his church in, in, a, in a, an appropriate way, when we're not saying we don't want this man? The, the place that I think really sums it up well, puts it in, in a nutshell for us, is Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 16. And it says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to, measure, or to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, for, for whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So in this, this age of celebrity pastors, we can be attracted to a person. And what Paul offers us here is a biblical view of what church leadership is supposed to look like and what it's supposed to do. So bummer, I'm not going to talk about what it means by prophets in this, in this context. Sorry. When it says shepherds and teachers, it, it, the word for shepherds is what we say pastors. So it's what he's talking about at the beginning of this is he has given to the church leaders. So you all submit to me and do everything I say and everything will be just ducky, right? That's, that's not how it works. If you get somebody into a position where they're like that, where it's all about me, they're missing the point. Continue reading. What we are given apostles and prophets and teachers and shepherds for is to equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up of the body. So the reason that we need the right people to rule in a church is so that we might be equipped for ministry, all of us, so that we might be built up as a body, as a unified group, as a church that's, that's in harmony. Well, to what end? Where are we going with this? Well, where we go with this is we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. So as we're gathered together and we have leadership, and our leadership is helping us to mature and to grow into, uh, in, in, in unity and, and do this work of ministry and build up the body of Christ. What it looks like is corporately, as a church body, we become more and more conformed to Christ. We look more like what Jesus is doing. And that's what God has promised us. In Romans, he says that, that we were predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, individually, but also corporately. As a church body, as we're, we're performing the work of ministry, as we're serving together, we corporately grow into the image of Christ, not into the image of celebrity pastor A. That, that's the important part. So that's, that's the end to which we're heading, is we're heading into the one who really rules the church, the actual head, who is Jesus Christ. This is his church. Your elders are simply under shepherds. We're, we're, we're the guys who listen to the head and say, yeah, that's what we should be doing. We're not the ones who are ultimately in charge. And we do that so that the whole body, joined and held together by every joint which is, with which it is equipped, makes the body grow and builds itself up in love. So as leaders, we're helping the body to knit together and to grow with what is equipped. And that goes back to that beginning. He has given them, 
He has provided, he gave apostles, prophets, teachers, shepherds, pastors. He gave those things. And so we take what he's given us and we knit that together and we work so that we build each other up in love. So as we are looking at ourselves and saying, all right, which one of the 12, or 12 uh, tribes of Israel am I? Um, we're none. We're not one of them. We are under the greater Joseph, the real Joseph, Christ, who is going to lead his brothers. And, and the way we do it, the way we approach it is we don't buck against it. We don't draw attention to ourselves. We don't have overt sin or covert sin where we're trying to sneak it in. Our goal, our aim is Jesus Christ. We're heading to the head that one has been put over top of the church for that purpose. So again, Jesus or Joseph sought his brothers. He went into the field looking for his brothers, not to beat them with a stick, not to condone their sin, but because he was called to be a leader of them. Jesus is doing the same thing. He came to his own but his own didn't, wouldn't receive him. When he's talking to the Syrophoenician woman, she says, hey, my, my daughter has a demon, would you heal her? He says, look, I came for the lost children of Israel. And he's not telling her no. What he says is, I came looking for my brothers. And when she submits to him, she says, guess what? You're a lost sheep of Israel. Be done as you ask, even though you're Syrophoenician, even though you're Gentile. So that, that's that picture of Jesus coming for his brothers. So he came for us. And he came to rule over us, not in a horrible, mean, vicious way, but in a loving, kind way, so that we're built up into the perfect what God wants from us. So the section, the chapter ends with verse 36. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. At this point, it looks like there is no chance that Joseph is going to be able to rule over his brothers. He's been sold into slavery in Egypt. He's gone. And, and this is horrible, and it's going to get worse before it gets better. So as we're struggling together, as we're trying to be under the head who is Christ, and, and your leaders are trying to help knit together all of these things as we're seeking to build each other up in love, it's going to get worse before it gets better. We're going to hit rocky patches. The, the point is the promise never disappeared. I, I said last week that I, I believe that Joseph held on to this dream. He held on to this promise that he was going to rule over his brothers. And that image of the sheaves, the food, demonstrated to him it was going to be for their good, not for their harm. So even as he goes into slavery in Egypt, he's looking forward to this promise that he will rule over his brothers. But how on earth is that going to happen at this point? No idea. It looks like it's going to be impossible. So I've been reading some stuff lately. I even wrote a little thing for EFCA today. We'll see if it gets published. Talking about the, uh, the problem with evangelicalism today. Uh, the term is, is being bandied about and is bruised pretty bad. Uh, there are some leaders who say, can we even define what we mean by evangelical anymore? Um, it, it's so diverse. You get everything from John MacArthur to Joel Osteen and everything in between. Uh, it's just hard to imagine what evangelicalism means anymore. Um, it's probably going to get worse. So what I was saying in this, this piece I've written is, well, what we should do as a body is not run from the term. 
We're branded with it. We're part of the Evangelical Free Church of America. What we need to do is lean into it and say, what do we mean by evangelical? Not what do other people mean. What do we mean by that term? Because we don't mean what people think it means. We have a specific thing that we're talking about. And so that, that's what I mean by it. it will probably get worse before it gets better. Is I think evangelicalism will get a couple of more black eyes. It will be bandied about in the media as this horrible thing, these terrible, bigoted, hate-filled people. And we know what we mean by it. We are being built up in the image of Christ in love. That's where we're heading. And so as we go, all we're saying is we want people to join us in this, this being built up in love. It's not a horrible thing. It, it, we're not terrible people who are out to kill people. We don't hate everybody. We're just trying to follow Christ as he's called us. So as we head into Potiphar's house, as we head into Egypt, um, don't forget that the promise is still there. Jesus will one day rule the world. He will lead the nations as a, a rod of iron dashing earthen pots. He, it, it, he will rule, and not in a horrible, cruel, disheartened way, but he's seeking to build his church up in love. And so that's the picture that we get of Joseph. One of the commentators said, it's not a happy accident that Joseph's life parallels Christ's. It isn't just accidental that they seem to line up this way. It is God's promising to do something and showing this picture. And so when, when we see Joseph as leading his brothers, that's what Jesus has come to do is to lead his brothers. And we are adopted into that family. So let's keep our hope in our brother, even though he got thrown in a pit, sold to Gentiles, appeared to be dead for all we knew. Um, there's a day coming when he will return. And we can have hope in that. That can power us through the times when it's difficult to be together as a body of Christ, when it's inconvenient, when somebody here upsets or disappoints you because I'm pretty sure we're going to do that at some point. We promise we'll try not to. Um, but it just happens because we're still sinners. But we're sinners being led by a good and a kind and a loving big brother who cares for us. Let's pray. Lord, your, um, Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery, threw him in a pit, exchanged him for cash, counted him as dead, and thought they were rid of him. And Lord, the crowd cried out, we have no king but Caesars, crucify him. Your disciples scattered when they saw you arrested. Lord, you were thrown into a pit, as it were, a tomb for three days. But Lord, the miracle happened on the other side. As you rose from the dead and you defeated all our foes. Lord, I pray that we would hang on to that promise, that beautiful picture, the, the hope that we have in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that that would fuel us to greater obedience, to encourage each other, to build each other up in love, to use the gifts that you've given to us to your great purpose because you are the one who will rule over your brothers. And Lord, unlike 
Joseph's brothers, we accept that rule. We long for that rule. We pray that we would be conformed to that rule. So come and reign, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.